Welcome to Making Sense of MarTech, an irregular set of conversations with some of the most interesting people in marketing, technology, and advertising. I'm Juan Mendoza. I write the MarTech Weekly Newsletter. It's a weekly email, and it covers the most important shifts in marketing technology. People who work in the world's largest tech, media, um, advertising um, companies read it. You can read, listen, and subscribe at themartechweekly.com. Okay. Today, I'm joined by Tessa Court. She is a CEO of Intelligence Bank. It's a business process software company servicing marketers across 55 countries. I recently featured a research piece from Intelligence Bank on the state of content regulation and the concepts of design and distribution obligations in the TMW newsletter. And it was very, very popular. So Intelligence Bank is a really interesting software company in that it offers a way for marketers to manage all of the complexities of marketing across digital asset management, aligning teams on brands, organizing resources, streamlining business processes, all of the complex minutiae of the world of a marketer, really. And not many companies share this unique space. And so today we talk about the rise of technology companies in this marketing operations arena why they're needed and how they significantly change the way marketing teams work together. And so now I give you Tessa Court. Hi, thanks for having me. Good to have you on Making Sense of MarTech. So I'd like to open with an introduction. You've been the CEO of Intelligence Bank for more than a decade. How did you find yourself at an Intelligence Bank and how have you seen the company evolve over that time to really meet marketers' needs as they've changed? Yeah, sure. So I found myself because I founded the company. So I, before Intelligence Bank, I ran, I was at Hitwise, which was an internet startup, and I ran the global sales and marketing team there and loved the whole startup experience. And we exited to Experian, which was a really fun, you know, experience to do. And I basically invented the product I always wanted as somebody running a large global sales and marketing team. So I guess during that time, I was frustrated by, I guess, clunky intranets and no sort of governance around, you know, digital assets and brand guidelines and workflow approvals just for, I guess, the creative function and marketing. So we weren't obviously a large organization, but, you know, managing 80 people across multiple time zones and countries, you know, exacerbated me as somebody as a CMO and also, you know, kind of emphasize the pain points. So Intelligence Bank was born really as, you know, a marketing system of record to help companies manage brand and marketing compliance at the end of the day. And I guess if I think about, you know, where marketing teams were, let's say 10 or 15 years ago to where they are now, I mean, marketing teams are always busy, right? So they're managing, you know, big budgets, you know, typically, you know, like a large enterprise, you know, company would be managing, let's say, 50 to 100 projects. They have three to five agencies, you know, whatever, you know, whatever they were doing at, at that time. And, you know, fast forward to now, you know, they're really overwhelmed with, you know, personalization, digital, omni-channel marketing. They're working with not only five agencies, but it's more like 10 or 15. They've got freelancers everywhere. They're dealing with privacy issues. They're dealing with, and also they're, you know, really operating under the shadow of compliance. So, you know, in Australia here, you know, with the banks, for instance, with the Royal Commission and other things. So, you know, they're, they're not only having to work faster and smarter and across lots of different media, so the iterations, the number of, I guess, pieces of content that they're doing, but 
they have this, I guess, this not only this brand, but also this regulatory compliance that a lot of industries have to, to go through. So that's what we help people do. So just like, I guess, sales teams use Salesforce, marketing departments use Intelligence Bank as the system of record to kind of herd the cats and bring everything under one roof. It's interesting, hey, this massive explosion of channels and so many different ways in which marketers can uh, use digital today, even compared to just 10 years ago, it, it actually blows my mind, just the explosion of, of the different channels, but then the fracturing of different teams as well. So, you know, marketing used to be really just marketing, but now you've got revenue ops, you've got growth marketing, you've got product management, you've got all these different disciplines that are split out of marketing and digital. And it's confusing. It's chaotic. There's so much going on. But then we also see this sort of constant pressure, I think, in enterprise businesses to go omni-channel. And, you know, that's a bit of a bugbear, that word for me, omni-channel. But really what it means is to really be able to execute across a whole bunch of different touch points for a customer and really allow the customer to really choose where they want to engage with a brand's content or um, make a sale or pick up product or whatever it is. And so there's all this new pressure to go omni-channel to really being able to scale and, and use your content across all different mediums and platforms. But how do you think this has really impacted the work of marketers today? What, what has been the greatest impact, do you think, over the past uh, decade or so on how marketers are working? And, and how does technology start feeding into that and supporting it? Yeah. So the first thing I would say is that I still think all of this is marketing. And I think that marketers need to wear lots of different hats. So it's not just, you know, about comms, but it's really about, it's, it's traditional marketing, it's price, it's, it's promotion. It's, you know, all, you know, if you think about the four P's of marketing, that's kind of what you just talked about. And it's, you know, experience is you know, a big part of that. And really, you know, thinking about giving customers not only the experience, but the ways to interact with the brand, whether it's purchase or getting information or whatever it is across different channels is what people expect and what consumers expect right now. So I think for marketers, you know, the needing to wear lots of different hats and being good at a lot of different things or being able to manage a lot of different types of processes is really important. One of the things that we talk about at Intelligence Bank, even with our own little team, is that you know, our team has to be creative and it has to be data-driven at the same time. And that's like a, that's like a really big ask for people because you have to be left and right side brain <laughs> people or have, you know, your team made, made up of those type of people as well. So I think for marketing teams, I, I would say three things that I, I'm seeing overall, I guess is like bigger, bigger trends that teams are having to look at. I would say, firstly, it's really the balance between brand and performance marketing. And, and that's a struggle. And that's a conversation that we're seeing a lot of. So how much do we invest in brand? How, do, how much do we in, invest in performance? And, that, and that's one thing. The second is orchestration. So with all of this going on, um, the message is the media, you know, and the channel is the media as well. So as you have, I guess, digital channels and digital experiences for customers, it's also you know, messaging opportunity as well. So orchestration is a really, and messaging orchestration is a really big challenge and a really big opportunity for marketers as well. So thinking about not only when things, you know, all this stuff that's going on is in market, but also coordinating messaging and brand messaging across not just, you know, comms, but also digital experiences as well, I think is really important. And then 
I think, you know, the last point would be focusing on customer experience, not just marketing would be, you know, the third and most obvious point as well. Yeah, it's, it's no easy task to be able to coordinate that in a way that's highly congruent and consistent in an enterprise business. It's just very hard. And I think that we realize that now that a, a lot of marketing teams, as those different departments are split out and there's been new channels come into market and all of those things, the importance of maintaining consistency across your brand messaging is so important. I can't count how many times, Tessa, where I've, you know, I've seen an ad on the side of a bus and then I went to their website and the messaging is completely different. Or I get an email and that I click through to the email and there's no congruency with what I was reading on that email and what I was seeing on the website. And so it's very, very hard to do. I think it's probably one of the more existential challenges of marketing moving into the 2020s is this idea of a connected, congruent experience for customers because everybody has a say, there's different priorities for different teams. There's different incentives for those different teams as well. And so, yeah, I've just found that absolutely fascinating. How do you create this really important culture in your team where everything is very consistent and you all have a very clear line of sight of what you're trying to achieve, but then also what the brand stands for as well. And so so Intelligence Bank offers a number of different really great solutions uh, that fit into this world of brand and content governance, but also risk and operations. So something I think about often when it comes to strategy work is, you know, what is the 20% of effort that could yield the 80% of results that you're after? What is those one or two critical things that uh, you really need to get right, or you need to sort of address so you can make significant progress in marketing operations? And I'd like to ask you that question. Where do you see some of the most significant impacts on what marketing uh, teams are doing today and how they're changing the operations? Yeah, sure. So I, the good news is that's an easy question for me to answer because this is, this is our day job and this is what we do. But I, I think to solve that first, it has to come from the top. So it's really tone at the top of the marketing organization. And there has to be buy-in and there has to be enforcement of not in a, I guess, you know, if you think about carrot and stick, it's got to be more carrot, less stick. But it's got to be about the marketing team and the organization coming together to make a decision that across everything that we do, we want it to look and feel the same. And, and, you know, this is how we want to operate. And it, but that, that, that vision and that goal has to come from the top or it, it usually falls down. So if you do have a strong CMO or a good or a strong marketing operations leader, it happens and it's amazing when it happens. And you know, like as a consumer, even when you see brands who have it together and you see consistency and, you know, in, in at messaging or branding or whatever it is, you can tell. So the three things that I would advise marketing teams to do to get it straight. So I think the first thing is centralizing your content. So if you think about most marketing departments, they spend between 25 and 40% of their, of their budgets each year on creative content. So if it's at the agency or on share drives and they can't control it and they can't see it and they can't centralize it, that is the number one thing you can do is bring it together and have some sort of approval process on what goes out the door. So that I would say that. The second is, you know, bringing your brand to life with brand guidelines and using brand hubs. So it's a way to educate non-marketing people as well who tend to, you know, publish things as well on brand on brand. And, you know, there's some funny stories about 
people's interpretation of brand values where, mm. you know, somebody will say, oh, well, you know, our brand value is interesting. And I thought, you know, a picture of a pig drinking a can of Coke was interesting. And you're like, <laughs> yeah, but that's my brand value. So people need that. And, and, and I think when mistakes are made from a branding perspective or messaging, a lot of times it's not intentional. It's not like people are like, people don't go out to create bad work and people don't go out to say, hmm, I really want to piss off the CMO right now. Like, I don't, I don't think people do that intentionally. I just don't think most people have an eye for good creative. And that's why you have agencies and brand agencies and things like that. Mm. And I don't think that they know and they don't understand. So brand education and brand guidelines and not just the guidelines, like use this color, use this font, but really educating people on what is our brand value of X mean? And what is the visual interpretation of that? And what does it kind of look like? And what's an example of like really amazing work? Because the designers and teams even outside of, you know, traditional marketing comms, like, you know, HR teams are putting out movies and videos and, you know, recruitment packs and things like that, that represent the brand. And they need to understand that as well. So that's a really, really strong piece. And, you know, we have clients like NAB and their brand, their, their brand hub online is just the most magnificent piece of art like you've ever seen, not just art, but it's, it's, it's amazing how engaging it is and how well it works for them and how interactive it is and really how hard it works to educate such a large organization. And, and I guess the last thing I would say is that, you know, every piece of creative starts with a brief. And so if you can get your creative brief right and you can get your messaging right and have an, a simple approval process. So like some of our clients, you know, have very extensive briefing and lots of different gates. Like we have cli some clients in really regulated industries who have like 10 steps to their marketing approvals and briefing processes with budgets and media buys and things like that. But you can start really simple and just start with the creative brief and get the brief approved, the messaging approved, the creative approved. And then, you know, it's going to be good when it comes out the other end because everyone signed off. So those are kind of the three things I would do. And if you can get that in place, our clients have absolutely seen the quality of creative output definitely increase with those three things. Yeah, that's fantastic. There's a, there's a few things I want to pick out of, of those three things that you've just called out. And the first one is this idea of a guideline or guardrails. I kind of think of it as as almost like a, you know, it's kind of like a sandbox, right? Here's the rules or here's what we do and don't stand for as a brand. Here is, you know, how we portray messaging and content, but your creative expression within those boundaries is up to you. And what I do find sometimes, um, talking to marketers is that when they, when they thinking about brand and they're thinking about content messaging, they can feel quite stifled by brand guidelines. Uh, because they say, well, we can't do anything creative or novel. We can't experiment with something new or an opportunity that we've seen in the marketplace. But I would actually say that brand guidelines empowers that, like you mentioned just before, it actually empowers that because it gives you and the team a, an ability to have situational awareness of what everybody is working towards. And it gives you that guardrail to be able to play within a specific set of rules. Now, every person plays team sports at some point in their life, and some athletes are absolutely remarkable, and they change the game, but they had to learn the rules first. If you want to be a great musician, you still have to learn the rules of 
how to play piano <laughs> at a basic level before you can actually become really creative. And I think it's the same analogy to here as well. You have to learn the rules. You have to understand what the brand stands for. And that comes from leadership and that comes from, you know, the philosophy of the company as well. And so I would say that's a really good point that you raised that guidelines and putting methodologies and processes and making that really visible to your teams should only really lead in one direction. And that is improving the creative outputs and the experimentation and the ability to really meet uh, customers' needs throughout all of those uh, pieces of content. And people need to be inspired though. So I think, you know, a lot of the brand hubs that we see that, that are out there on the planet, like it's kind of like, okay, here's our colors, here's our fonts, here's our, you know, whatever, you know, like it's very technical from a graphic design perspective. And, and, and those elements are absolutely needed. Like you don't want, you know, purple when your brand is red, right? So that's, that's a given. But I think the role that the brand hubs that we work with our clients, because we provide our clients with complete flexibility in their brand hubs, is they're able to bring the brand to life and they're able to showcase the flexibility of their brands, right? And they're able to showcase just this amazing, the, the scope of their brand and the creativity of their brand as well, because just showing, oh, you know, our colors are, you know, blue and green or whatever it is, um, that's not inspirational and that's not going to get you to the creative outcomes that you need. But creatives love seeing or marketers love seeing other creative work. I mean, you know, when I worked in agency land in New York, you know, when we watched the Super Bowl, we turned off the ad, we, tur we turned off the Super Bowl and just watched the ads, right? Like people want to see mm. the work of other people and the creative work and the ads and the, and the comms to, to see how that's done for inspiration. And when done well, it's, it's awesome. And it's, it's really inspiring. And I've got a question for you and it's a little bit of a contentious one, but how do you see agile methodologies? So scrum and, you know, Kanban, all these different agile methodologies coming into marketing how do you actually see that um, impacting creative output? Because the creative process is very different from a software process. And, uh, you know, agile methodologies came from software development originally. But what are your thoughts on that? Does it have a negative impact or a positive impact on creativity in a business? Yeah, I, look, I think McKinsey made a lot of money out of it. No, um, look, I think there's kind of, look, I think, I think, in some ways it's good in the sense that I think being, being, um, working in, you know, smaller teams, having flexible decision-making and being able to kind of pivot decisions and respond to market situations the way software companies do is really good. However, I do think true agile and marketing is very, very difficult to do. And I know that all, you know, all the big companies are moving toward that. You know, they've got squads and teams and, you know, they're all, you know, kind of aligned in that and in, in those, I guess, the new agile ways of working. But I think the problem is, is that creative and marketing and messaging comes down to style, taste and interpretation. And I think decentralizing that and decentralizing art direction and brand is very, very hard to control. So what, what, what we're seeing with a lot of our clients is that even though you have that, you still need, I guess, the system of record or the software technology to run through approvals through just to, just to have that check as well. So not, not, not to hold things up and make things hard and awful, but I think if that's left unchecked, I think you can end up with 
a me- very messy brand and you can end up with a lot of creative interpretations with like pigs drinking cans of Coke kind of things. I also think, but on the flip side, I think there are some things that, you know, are really good. So, you know, moving tasks to Kanban board and breaking down things to sprints are really, are really good as well. You know, at, at Intelligence Bank, we run, obviously we're a software company, so we run agile, but even with that, you know, I put deadlines on everything. So I'm like, okay, we can run in a couple of sprints, but when are we launching this thing? So, you know, it's, it's, you know, I think it's a double-edged sword. And I think for marketers, you need to have a sense of deadline. I don't think it can ever be fully agile. And you need to also have the creative control and the creative standards as well, which I think decentralized is very difficult. Yeah. And that's a, that's a really good point that agile as well, that the, the original premise of agile was people over process in the original manifesto. And yeah. I think that actually rings true to what you're saying there is that there are some very clear milestones in a creative process that would make a lot of sense to support with methodologies that you can borrow from agile. So working in sprints, approvals, you know, being able to move tickets and assign things to people, you know, the, all of those sort of practical aspects makes a lot of sense. But I think often, you know, when we talk about agile, we talk about it in a way in that it's all about processes, right? Are you scrum? Are you safe for scaled agile framework? You know, like these are all processes, but what I actually really agile. like, yeah. yeah, yeah. But what I really like about there's some new interpretations of agile coming out. There's a, what's called the agile marketing manifesto. And that's a reinterpretation of some of those agile principles and bring it into the world of marketing. So not just trying to shoehorn something that lives in software land into marketing land, really trying to reinterpret it, recontextualize it so that there is a, a really clear understanding of what we mean by agile marketing. I mean, it is still very new and nascent, but yeah, it's, it's very interesting to uh, get your thoughts on that. So I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about regulation in the marketing space. And you know, people might think that it's a little bit of a boring topic, but I actually think it's probably one of the most significant pressures on marketing in the next day. We're seeing regulation across the entire industry. We're seeing Facebook and Google and these large tech platforms being regulated in almost every country. We had the GDPR. We've had a number of different privacy and tech regulations come through. We've had companies like Apple self-regulate how uh, they collect data on, on their apps and how they do things like email open rates and stuff like that. And so there's all this regulation happening in the industry. And one thing that I found particularly interesting that Intelligence Bank has been talking about is this idea of regulating content. And you guys did a really great report on DDO, which stands for Design and Distribution Obligations. It's a emerging form of regulation. It really guides content and audience targeting that can be used by some companies. So insurance and financial companies, you know, there are government restrictions there on who you can target with which products and what kind of content that you can serve to those customers as well. And I do think that, you know, the understanding of design dark patterns and UX dark patterns, you know, there are a lot of manipulative practice practices in the marketing technology space, particularly for consumers. And so I do think that regulation is going to be far more important as we step through into the 2020s. So I want to understand a little bit about how you think this issue is impacting marketers today. Where do you see technology stepping in and helping with some of the regulation challenges that we're already seeing around content and audience targeting? Yeah, sure. So I guess first I would say 
that it is a major issue that is keeping CMOs up at night, especially if you're in a regulated industry. So if you're in financial services, insurance, government, even education, utilities, if you're regulated, you're thinking about this all the time. And so the challenge, and I guess where technology comes in, is how do you democratize the responsibility for this so you don't get bottlenecks? So it's not like you're, you're working on all this creative with omnichannel and personalization. And, you know, we're talking about the explosion of digital media and you're working on a zillion projects. And then all of a sudden, legal has to sign off on everything and you get slowed down and then everything gets rejected. So the idea here is that using a technology like Intelligence Bank is that you can within your creative briefs, you can pre-populate the regulations that you need. So for example, one of our clients, which is Suncorp Bank, they've been a client, they're actually our first client ever, but they've been a client of ours for a really long time. What they do is that when their marketers are creating creative briefs, is that let's say it's for a certain product, it'll say, okay, it's a product, you're talking about this, this is the regulation, that needs to be included, or this is the disclaimer rather that needs to be included. So what we try to do for those clients is try to automate that, I guess, that compliance requirement into the briefs. So the marketers know it's there up front. It's there. So it's already incorporated in the ads to the agencies up front. So it's not a last minute sort of thing. And what's nice about that is that, you know, wh whether it's one creative brief and then that brief goes across you know, social, you know, print, you know, whatever it is, that disclaimer is, is everywhere. And that's really important. And you need a system that's flexible. So DDO, as an example, this is what, you know, every single, you know, financial services company in Australia is talking about right now is because it just comes in and, you know, these, these banks have to be compliant by the 5th of October, you know, and so there's a real scramble to make sure that they have, you know, everything buttoned up, you know, so their, their entire marketing team, you know, is able to comply. So, mm. what, and I think what's really important is that you make it easy for marketing people to do it. So it, it's, a, it's a fact of life. They're in regulated industries. How do you just make it part of their day job so they don't have to think about it and it just happens. And it ensures that they can just still just get the creative out the door quickly and it's completely self-serve. So that's really the role technology plays. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating to me, hey, that, yeah, there, there's probably going to be more industries gonna, that are going to be impacted by this form of regulation and it's still pretty new. And, you know, it, I think, yeah, the financial, financial sector is um, getting hit with the, the most at the moment, but, you know, I can see it happening in travel. I can see it happening in real estate. I can definitely see it happening in software as a service companies. You're already starting to see some of that with data privacy and use. And so there's a very, very strong argument here for planning forward for that, for those potential risks and putting in those processes. And so you can ensure that, uh, yeah, everything that goes out to market doesn't end up getting you fined, fired or sued. <laughs> yeah, no, no. Think about it. It's like, you know, remember the days we used to fly on airplanes all the time? Yeah. <laughs> It was like a million years ago. I don't know. I don't know. Um, I think about it as, you know, you could have a pilot who flies, you know, they've been flying for 25 years, but every time they take off and land that airplane, they're checking off the takeoff and the landing list, right? They're still checking those boxes. And the same thing for, for, for marketing and with, with kind of regulation and marketing is that it's there to ensure that people are just following the bouncy ball, not to slow them down, 
mm-hmm. but it just ensures that quality check as as you go. So those are the things that are, yeah, that are important. So then when you go to get the creative approved at the end, you know, the head of legal isn't saying, well, you missed this, 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 and this. It just goes through the, to the keeper and they know it's done. So because you've gone through that step already. So it's quite mm-hmm. good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, uh, that's fantastic. And I'd like to ask you a question about marketing operations and technology. Where do you actually see it moving forward into the future? Say 10 years from now or five years from now, where do you see these technologies evolving? To me, it does seem still pretty new. A lot of these technologies, even though Intelligence Bank has been around for more than a decade, the, I guess the mainstream adoption of a lot of these technologies, the, the realization that actually they are quite valuable and augmenting processes and whatnot, it, it still seems quite new. A good example of that is Airtable. So you probably wouldn't say they're a marketing operations company, but you know they man, they offer a database that's really flexible project management you know they offer a whole bunch of dynamic services within that their software suite and they they're valued about 7 billion dollars now and somebody recently just coined that they're kind of like the Roblox of marketing operations and i found that quite interesting in that there is not only with uh, companies like yeah airtable but also notion as well it's like kind of really interesting free for flexible databases and and ability to really create a work environment that suits you and your team. And so that to me is a little bit of an indicator of where things are going. So less, you know, we work in Word documents and, you know, or in PowerPoints and all those things. And actually everything can be really nicely centralized in a very flexible, adaptive workspace like Airtable or Notion. But I would like your view on that. Where do you see the processes and the sort of the technology that manages compliance and and centralization of content. Where do you see these technologies going into the future? And what are you planning for? Yeah. So, yeah. So just to give you some numbers to back that up. So um, currently marketing departments are spending about 25% of their budgets on marketing technology. So whether that's like a system of record, like intelligence bank, or it's, you know, other MarTech, that's kind of the expenditure level. and, And we expect to see that increase over time. And they'll continue to be, you know, pretty big tech buyers, you know, outside of IT as well. We're also seeing that from a penetration rate, I guess, of, you know, marketing operations software, we're really only scratching the surface. So a lot of our clients are not necessarily switching from one system to intelligence bank. They're really switching from chaos. So they're coming from spreadsheets, Mm. you know disparate systems that like they might have a Dropbox, they might have, you know, an Airtable, they might have, you know, they're, they're switching from things that are not working together and they want to have it all in one place. So they want to have, you know, an enterprise dam with the form capability with workflow and brand guidelines, like all, all at once. So that's kind of what we're seeing. So I think there's a big runway. I think it's green space. I think yeah, there's a, there's a lot of room. There's, it's, it's very crowded. Like MarTech is very crowded. I don't know if you see the, I think the guy from HubSpot puts together mm. MarTech ecosystem and it used to be like 1500 companies and now there's like 10,000 or something, but you know, it is, it is crowded. There's a lot of tools out there. And I do think, you know, what, what we will see is more integrations and something that you and I were talking about previously is the need for these tools to talk to each other more and more. So, you know, one of the things that we do at Intelligence Bank is, you know, we launched about a year and a half ago is this concept called a handshake. So how do we make our API easy? So, you know, if you want to approve something in Asana or 
a Monday or in Teams and you want it to come back to Intelligence Bank, we can do that. And we can do that really easily. And we can set up that API really easy through Zapier, for example. So it's got to be it's got to be easy and accessible for people. And you have to recognize that tech stacks and market martech stacks are different and and people are going to be using lots of different technologies and they've got to talk to each other. So I think talking to each other is one thing. And then the other thing I think that's really exciting for us is the role of AI as well, especially from a marketing compliance perspective. So being able to kind of detect problems before they occur is something that we're giving a lot of thought to right now. So we right now within our product, we can score creative based on risk profile. So we can say, you know, does a piece of creative or creative brief, is it going to, you know, include, let's say a price point? Is it a new piece of creative? Have we ever done this before? Is it a new product that we're advertising, which can elevate it automatically to certain workflow groups? But I think with AI, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of negative things about AI sometimes, but I think it's a positive thing. You can actually catch things before it's a problem. So we're pretty excited about that. For the- yeah, I think there's two really big themes there is that, yeah, uh, you're right. There has been an explosion of tools. There's more products than ever, which means that people's marketing technology stacks are more diverse than ever. So the sort of API economy, as I coin it, is really interesting. You know, there's entire companies that are dedicated as middleware. A really good one is MuleSoft, um, was acquired yeah. by Salesforce. And, you know, <laughs> unfortunately, MuleSoft is kind of used to integrate Salesforce own products and suites acquisitions over the years. But what's quite interesting to me is that there are, is an entire economy dedicated to just integrating these platforms together, whether it be MuleSoft or Zapier or, you know, uh, this, if this, then that, you know, there's a whole, whole bunch of different softwares out there just making it easier for marketers to integrate things. And so it's interesting that Intelligence Bank is going down that direction with the product, sounds like Handshake, which is great. But also there is this, yeah, this layer of artificial intelligence and removing some of the grunt work out of marketing operations, you know? So I I was looking at a product even just yesterday, it was called Jarvis. And what it allows you to do is it allows you to write essays, articles, social posts, ads, all through the, through a a GPT-3 layer, which is a, a machine learning program. And it will, you give them some examples of your previous writing, you give the the program your topic, and then it will write it for you. There's another really great software company called Pencil.ai. Uh, it was spun out of a, the former head of marketing for Facebook. And what they do is they allow you to write ads by using artificial intelligence. And so there's this fascinating, absolutely fascinating new emerging space of outsourcing your creative output to machine learning programs. And, you know, I, I, I'm a little bit skeptical and it'd be good to get your view on this as well, Tessa. I'm a little bit skeptical on those types of programs because yes, sure. They can write a great article, but there's something around the human creativity that's missed when everything is directed by a machine learning program. But those companies are growing exponentially fast and it's removing a lot of that sort of brunt work or that replication type content that you need to do across different channels. But what are your thoughts on that? Do you think that we should maintain a level of human creativity in what we're doing or should we embrace the future by using AI and machine learning to create our content? Well, I think, I think your point about taking the grunt work out of it is a really good point. So for example, like one of our tools is creative templates where people can build their own ads. So people can come to Intelligence Bank and say, okay, we're advertising at home loans. I'm going to take the pre-approved blocks of that ad 
and say, okay, this is the approved headline, this is the approved image, and this is the approved interest rate for the state that I happen to be in. It'll just pull it together. And then it's like this beautiful ad and I am not a creative person and I've just done this and it's print ready, ready to go. Yeah. Um, and so I think iterations of that, whether it's video banners and putting those sorts of things together from an AI it, and taking that to the next step through AI is super cool. And you can do that. But I think creating that, creating the template, I still think AI is a bit away from that. And can they do that better than an amazing designer yet? Probably not immediately. Will it get there? Mm. Probably. I don't know. I think, I think it can get there. I think with the, with the language, it does sound still very robotic and it is problematic. And <laughs> it just depends on how precious you are about copy. So even, you know, we've worked with SEO agencies of our own business and they're like, oh, it's just an SEO article. You don't need to worry about it. I'm like, yeah, we're worrying about it because if somebody sees Intelligence Bank out there on the internet and mm -hmm. it's an SEO ad about something, I don't want it to be bad. Like, so it just depends on your threshold for crap, I guess I would say. So, you know, you're, I love that. you're, you're happy. That. Uh, I'm going to yeah. put that on a, on a slide one day, Atessa. So what is your threshold for crap? Well, I think so. Cause you'll get, you'll get to a point where it, look, we've got some clients that, um, we're doing some pretty cool live streaming of video and we were, you know, we're talking to them about using AI for, for the transcribers and they're like, well, it's not perfect yet. So mm. we can't use it because their threshold was very high. So I think that also depends on where you are with that. And, you know, I know, I know a lot of people use it, you know, people are starting to use AI for, for PPC ads and starting to use automated engines for writing ads on that. But then you end up sometimes with these ads that like make zero sense, you know, advertising your brand. And I don't know. I just think it can, it can be off-putting. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not quite there yet. I might be old school, but. Yeah. The, the New York Times did a really great piece on this called um, the great blanding. Um, bland as in, you know, boring, dull type of content and creative. And we see this a lot with D2C, direct-to-consumer type companies where their style and their imagery is all very similar. You know, it's a sort of millennial chic. It's a, you know, very, 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 very boring, right? Because you see the same thing over and again. There's another style that we see a lot with technology companies in particular in SaaS. It's called corporate Memphis. And you probably know what this is when you see it, which is, you know, there's geometric people, you know, and they're, you know, oddly shaped people and it's very colorful and vibrant. And you can see almost every SaaS company has a format of it, you know, and there's this sort of real blanding aspect to it. And then you look at some of the world's most high profile fashion brands like Burberry and, um, and others, and all of them have gone to this serif font and all of it looks the same now. And I think that, you know, there is a bit of a risk there, right? Like some of the most engaging marketing content I receive is so out there that I don't even know why companies aren't embracing new experimental ways to reach their audiences with new content. One really good example is this company. I talk about them all the time. They're called, uh, we're not really strangers and they sell games. They sell like packs of cards and things like that. And they send an email every day and the email is literally like one sentence in it. There's no marketing promotional content. It just asks you questions and it's, you know, it's kind of like a little email companion for you and you're you're reading through it every week. And I love them. Every time I see it, I open it. Uh, and that's just using an old channel, like emails being around forever, but they just take this really fresh new approach to content. Like instead of like, they could be putting, you know, three panels and all the features of their products and promotions and sales, but they don't do that. They just 
understand their audience and they use their content to connect with them in a very unique way. I've never seen email marketing like it before. And so I would say, yeah, there's this risk around if we move and outsource a lot of our content or the, even the distribution of it to machines, it does mean that it's probably going to be pretty similar to what everybody else is doing. And every marketer worth their salt is really thinking about differentiating as well. I can't listen to Spotify anymore because it's like, I'm just like being, you know, I'm being like pigeonholed to like Aretha Franklin and that's all, like I listened to it once and that's all I can listen to now. So, you know, I, th I think that's a problem with machine learning and AI and, you know, you, I, I think it's a huge issue or Pinterest, you know, you, you like one thing and it's all you see and it's your whole experience and it's a problem. Hmm. Yeah. So, I, and I, I think that some of the best marketers out there still think that, yeah, it, the, the really great creative work comes from community. It comes from collaboration. It comes from just a human spirit, right? Like the, the ability to create and to conceptualize something completely new. Um, and I don't think that's going the way. I just think there'll be a lot of shortcut taking from some brands, which is to be expected. And I would say it's kind of lazy marketing, right? Where, you know, there are all these mm. template, you know, it, you know, you're talking about websites and, you know, things. There are all these like awesome templates out there that you can buy, like Graphic River, you know, whatever it is. And, but you look like everyone else, like really quickly. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that's, that's a problem. <laughs> you, know, you know, you should be understanding your audience and then giving something fresh and unique. And, you know, again, I think there's this uh, bit of bit symptomatic, symptomatic of lazy marketing, but I think that trickles down from, you know, if you're not really passionate about what the work that you're doing or the brand and what they stand for, then, uh, then why are you there in the first place? You know, it's a bit more of an existential question, I think, but I do have a couple questions from the TMW community. So I put this, uh, podcast out to say, Hey, who would like uh, to ask test questions around marketing operations? And a few really interesting ones came back. The first one is talking about what's good versus great in marketing ops and how much of success is actually the platform of choice versus the process. So there's a couple of things to unpack there. I guess we can start with the good versus great. So uh, across the, all the different countries that you work in, all the different companies that you, you service, what is a really great marketing operations program look like? Okay. So it's, this is my Downton Abbey analogy, which I love. So, and I'm stealing this from one of our clients. So they very, very cleverly, instead of trying to shove every single interaction marketing has in every single approval process that they do into the platform, they basically thought about it in terms of marketing compliance. And so this client specifically was in a regulated industry and they're like, okay, we just want to capture what do we want to report on and what do we care about? So instead of saying, okay, every time you talk to your agency about the third version of, you know, that tiny banner that you're doing, I don't care about that stuff. But what I do care about is, is the brief getting signed off, is the media budget getting signed off, is the, um, is, you know, has legal signed off, you know, what, whatever those inflection points are. So it's kind of like this upstairs, downstairs view of the world where the upstairs is, let's say, intelligence bank, and it's these inflection points of what's important and what they need to report on and what they want to make sure they have an audit trail and they know what's going on and they want to reflect in their reporting and their media plans and things like that. And then the downstairs is, you know, kind of the day in the life of marketing and all the craziness that goes on. And they kind of don't care where that happens. It can happen on different technologies. It can happen on the phone. It can happen, you know, pre or post COVID, you know, 
at the bar over a drink. You know, it doesn't matter how, how that stuff goes on. So I think that's what makes it great. So that's one thing. The second thing is what also makes it great is when people use the system. So we've had situations where people, you know, they want a system, they want people to use it. And then they say, okay, use it if you want. And then they kind of drop the program. So, and and we have a lot of, I hear this a lot with sales teams where, you know, they spend a zillion dollars on Salesforce and then salespeople never use it as well. And this is, you know, a problem with all B2B sort of software platforms. So what what we always recommend is that, you know, the work just starts when you buy something. So you really need, again, top-down support for this and monthly reporting on your, especially like in our situation on the marketing compliance and the usage is really, really important. And to make sure that, you know, let's say it's workflow campaigns that you're, you're, you're concerned about and that you want to make sure you're doing properly, that you're measuring that on a monthly basis to ensure usage. And that if you have fall off or drop off, which you will have, that you can see where it is, you can go kind of address that. And I think the last thing that I would say is that, you know, you never want to, you want to follow, you, the technology has to follow the people in the organization. So you never want it to be where it's, you don't want to, I guess, if somebody, if you, if you have a company that is not very well organized and is not adhered to a lot of process and you're trying to get them there. You don't want to boil the ocean at first. You want to kind of take them on a journey for that. And so sometimes clients will say to me, okay, we're like crazy and chaotic and we're approving things on the side of a napkin with a coffee stain on it. And then we want your best workflow. And I'm like, no, you're not going to get that. So you need to start small and you've got to, and, and to me, like greatness is if you can get into a system and start using it, and then you can take baby steps to get to great as well. Mm, so yeah. The idea of baby steps makes a lot of sense. Uh, I see a lot of, um, there was a really fantastic story last week, perhaps not fantastic for the company, but uh, Lidl, they're the uh, competitor to Aldi. So a grocery chain store for years, I've been running on legacy systems. And then over the past five years, they've been moving towards implementing SAP for all of their enterprise technology, the underlying software that manages all fulfillment and stores and everything, digital experience. So they got five years into planning towards onboarding SAP. They spent 500 million euros. And then they turned around last month and said, we're actually canceling all of it. And we're going to stay with our legacy system. And I think a lot of the platform choice and sort of that, yeah, that procurement of technology. I think companies take really big bites out of that sometimes. And sometimes it's needed, you know, like a lot of companies that are high performing, they hit a ceiling with their technology. It's no longer scalable for them to continue moving forward. However, um, when you see stories like a little and SAP, that's when you know that, that they've been perhaps sold something that's, that doesn't necessarily need to be the, the way in which they go about it. They could take incremental steps. They could experiment with one region or one store. They could, you know, they could actually take those baby steps and really learn and improve over time. And I think that's just a really good discipline is actually breaking that down, moving forward with one small incremental change, seeing the win, seeing the learnings, and then continue to grow from there. It's so much risk and it creates, personally, I've been in so many situations where it creates so much stress in an organization where you want your staff to be happy and productive and, and, you know, really hitting their goals. It does create a lot of stress when you try to make these massive big bang changes to processes and the technology that you're using as well. 
And so I, I think your advice there is really spot on and really helpful. Take baby steps. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. Move incrementally towards your goal. And so the next question, which is quite interesting, is managing operational risk for marketing operations. So, so things like emerging trends, like revenue ops and marketing ops, you know, a lot of that actually has to do with managing risk. So risk to revenue or risk to compliance and things like that. But what would you say are some of the key things that, that you can set up when you're talking with customers about how to manage risk in their marketing teams? Yep. So I always say, start with what you want to report on. So, you know, when, when people come to us, a lot of times they're in a world of pain. So a lot of times it'll be like a new head of marketing, or they've just been slapped on the wrist by the ACCC, or there's a world commission new thing that, you know, they have to adhere to, or, you know, the board is like, you know, we're sick of paying these multi-million dollar fines because marketing can't get its act together. So what, whatever the reason they come to us is. And usually what we say is, okay, you've got a lot of problems right now and you've got stuff everywhere. You're, and again, you're usually coming from chaos, right? You're coming from spreadsheets. You're coming from share drives. Your stuff is everywhere. Like the problems are huge. What, what do you want, like in your ideal world, what do you want to know from a marketing perspective? So we start there. And then what we do to make sure we don't end up in an SAP situation. Mm -hmm. We kind of just break down the project. So we start with like what's achievable now. And, you know, when we're talking about like, let's say creative assets, you know, like where's all my content for sleep? Most people don't even know where it is when, when they're in those situations. We're like, okay, you're going to draw a line in the sand. Like, you know what you're using now because it's in market. Start with that. So there's there's tips and tricks that we use to kind of get people up and running fast. So that I would say that's the first thing. And then the second thing, what what we try to do from a, I guess, managing operational risk is we we try to think about what their process is now. And we try to mirror that with the technology. So we don't try to force them into our process, but we try to wrap our process, our technology around their process to make it faster, better, cheaper. And those are kind of the two things that we do to make it better for them. Mm, that's, that's really great. And it's, it's, fascinating to me how many marketing teams are in that state where they actually hit almost like a crisis point where they don't, all their content is scattered across different systems. You know, they don't have any clear line of sight. And I often think that has to do with that slow build of, you know, lack of compliance, lack of uh, process, or even just human discipline, right? Over time that kind of builds up and then it comes to a point where, yeah, I actually we are very inefficient now or are very inconsistent with our branding and our messaging because of our lack of compliance and our lack of process around how, what we do. So it goes back to earlier, the top of the show, when we were talking about a sandbox and so we're talking about having those guidelines are actually a really fantastic way to improve the rigor of what you're doing and improve the creative output of your teams. And it all comes together. And so what, I've got one last question for you, and this actually has not much to do with marketing ops, but I am curious. You talk a little bit about starting and scaling a software business, the founder of Intelligence Bank, of course, you know, and you know, you've taken this company over more than 10 years into, you know, many, many countries. But one thing you talk about, which is interesting to me is being considerate of the human side of scaling a technology business. And I, I often find that's quite interesting, right? Because humans don't scale. Like the, our outputs are, our, you know, the, the work that we do is, is the work we do, you know. But, you know, there's so much focus on scaling tech. But what does it look like to actually support the people behind scaling that technology? And what does that look like for you in Intelligence Bank? 
Yeah, that's a really good question. So we are, yeah, I would say that we're more of a scale-up business than a startup now. So we're about 85 people now. So, and we just completed a round funding. So we we completed a growth capital round of about 50 million from a U.S. growth um, equity company in, in the U.S. So this closed a couple of months ago now. So yeah, we're well and truly, I guess, in that phase now of, you know, rapid growth. And for us, you know, obviously our tech is massively important. I mean, we're a product company and we think about product scale all the time, but we can't do it without our people. And, you know, our people are the ones making the decisions around our tech. So I think having, you know, creating the culture around the technology is really important and the types of people that you hire. We could do a whole other podcast on, I guess, on this, but but yeah, I think it's it's the culture that you build around the technology uh, and the people that you hire. So not only do you need amazing programmers and marketers and things like that from a skills perspective, but the people who can pull it off and pull off a startup and bring it from, you know, when I, when I reflect on Intelligence Bank, I was like, it's pretty cool. Like it was an idea 10 years ago, like wow. it, was, it was air 10 years ago. And now we work with some of the world's biggest brands and, you know, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty amazing to think what it's become and in such a short period of, I mean, a relatively short period of time, but, but it, it, it would be nothing like you can build the technology, but it's absolutely nothing and worthless unless you have the team. Yeah, that's, that's very true. Isn't it? A lot of the success comes from yeah, the diversity of the teams, the views, the different perspectives, the different skill sets and everything like that all comes together. It's really important. I have one last question for you and this should be a pretty quick one, but I am curious because as you mentioned, like 10 years ago, Intelligence Bank was air. It was just an idea. When was it that moment that you realized that you had achieved a sense of product market fit or that this would actually become um, a much bigger thing or more important in the industry? You know, it's really, it's funny you say that because I am one of those people where I always feel like my job is never done. And every year I always feel like, oh, I've got this other hill to climb, this other mountain to conquer. Sure. I'm kind of one of those people who's never happy, so I'm happy, but, you know, just I feel happy yet never satisfied about achievements. So I always want to kind of keep going to the next level. But I think it was when we had just launched in the U.S. So we hired a, a GM of the U.S., David Porter, who's still with us today, and it's just amazing. And I'm just so thankful we found him when we did. And this was about probably about five years ago, we had, he did our, kind of our first webinar with one of, with an industry, there's like an industry event for digital asset management. And we had a client on board and he was doing this webinar with David and I wasn't on the webinar. I had nothing to do with a webinar. And there was this guy that I had never met. And, and before that, I knew every client. I knew everything that was going on. There was a guy I'd never met in the US talking about Intelligence Bank, about how it was the marketing system of record for this hotel chain in the U.S. and how important it was for him. And I was like, hmm, I don't even know this guy and this is working. And, and I think it was at that point I knew that we had something really special because I think it's really easy, I, I wouldn't say really easy, but when you, when you can sell to people you know and you can meet in person yourself as a founder because founders have a ton of energy and hmm. they have a level of desperation. Like it's yeah. right. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, yeah, like failure is not an option, but yeah. when you have other people talk about your product in a way that they don't know you, they don't care about you. Like 
they don't know you from a bar of soap. Mm. When at that moment, I think, and that was kind of four or five years in, mm. I was like, wow, this is a pretty special moment that, that's happening. And the, the next moment that happened was actually just last week when you know, we were, you know, we've been in this like crazy capital raise, you know, investment period, which took nine months to do, you know, with COVID and everything else. And, you know, lockdowns have been just obviously insane, you know, working remotely. And, you know, we know we're growing really well and everything else, but our COO, Nigel Neal, put together our numbers for our sales kickoff, which we renamed our customer love summit. And I was looking at our numbers and I was like, like, that's really amazing. You know, and I know our numbers, like I know every dollar in and out of intelligence bank, but I'm looking at the trends and I'm looking at the numbers and I'm looking at the customers and it just makes you kind of sit back and say, yeah, this is going to fly. Like, we're at the, that next level. And so I think there's, you know, there are times in a business's journey that, you know, that you're really proud of and their inflection points. And, you know, those are kind of two examples and they're little, they're the little moments, right? They're not like big moments. And, you know, the capital raise and all that was massive and great, but it was actually, you know, a PowerPoint presentation where I was like, oh yeah, that's pretty cool. You know, that it was, it was that versus, you know, the capital that that was you know probably more exciting for me so yeah the the overall growth of the business and the, the i guess the success that you've found so far and you know it's it's fascinating to me hey because like that inflection point where you realize yeah wow like people i don't know in different countries like are talking about your product or service like even personally with tmw newsletter and and this media business I'm building on the side, you know, I had, I was off for two weeks, no social media, no publishing, nothing, no podcasts. And then throughout that time, I had a, just this flurry, this, this floodgate of new subscribers from all places of the world, like new countries, new places, heaps in Europe, heaps in the States, you know, and I'm like, where are all these people coming from? I have no idea. You know, they're all just finding the newsletter through their networks. And for me, that's kind of a bit of a tipping point as well. Personally, it's like, okay, yeah. You're starting to get traction. People are realizing value. And when you see that, it's actually really rewarding because as I guess founder, it's the original idea, the spark that started the company and, you know, it must be something really to be proud of. So uh, congratulations. That's fantastic um, to hear, Tessa. But we are out of, so I have one final question for you, Tessa, but where can people find you online? So intelligencebank.com is one place and I'm mostly on LinkedIn. I don't, I'm not a big Twitter fan, so LinkedIn is probably the best place. Great. Well, uh, be sure to follow Tessa and check out Intelligence Bank. Thank you so much for joining me on Making Sense of MarTech. Thanks, Juan. Speak soon.